Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds family. This episode continues the Cardio Nerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, Director of Journal Club for the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, or the ASPC. If you're enjoying the episode or show, please consider supporting the show by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform and think of somebody who would enjoy the podcast and spread the Cardio Nerds word. If they are new to podcasting, just hop on their phone and show them how to subscribe. In this episode, we will learn all about the clinical application of ASCVD primary and secondary prevention guidelines from Dr. Allison Bailey, editor-in-chief of the Excel Audio Journal and a huge Cardio Nerd role model. Before we dive into this episode, we have a very special special announcement from the Cardio Nerds Academy Program Director, Dr. Tommy Das. Hey, Cardio Nerds. My name is Tommy Das. I'm a cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic and the Program Director for the Cardio Nerds Academy Fellowship. I am so excited to announce that applications for the next class of Cardio Nerds Academy Fellows are now open. If you're a current internal medicine resident interested in the intersection between medical education, cardiovascular disease, and digital media, please consider applying. For more information about the fellowship, check out the Cardio Nerds website, where you'll find some of the stellar digital education products that our fellows have created. Applications are due October 15th. Please check out the description on this episode for a link to the application. In the meantime, stay nerdy, everyone. Thanks, Tommy. The Cardio Nerds Academy application link is on this episode's page right below the episode description. Check out cardionerds.com forward slash academy for more information. Remember, the application deadline is October 15th, 2021. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology and made possible by unrestricted support from Amgen. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. <laughs> Hey, Cardio Nerds, it's Rick Ferraro back with Tommy Das. Thank you for joining us as we continue our Cardio Nerds Prevention Series on LDL Cholesterol in collaboration with the American Society of Prevention Cardiology. In parts one and two of this series, we've reviewed the pathophysiology of LDL as well as the link between LDL and adverse cardiovascular events. In this third and final part of our series, we'll be reviewing the current guidelines regarding LDL cholesterol as well as some practical pearls about how to bring these guidelines into clinical practice. That's right, Rick. So excited to join today and chat with some truly great minds in cardiology. Speaking of which, it's my honor and privilege to introduce our guest, Dr. Allison Bailey. Dr. Bailey is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at Centennial Heart. She earned her medical degree at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine, where she also served as internal medicine resident, chief medical resident, cardiology fellow, and chief cardiology fellow. A dedicated educator and program builder, Dr. Bailey has served as the Associate Program Director for the Cardiology Fellowships at the University of Kentucky, as well as the University of Tennessee Chattanooga. 
Additionally, she was recently named the new editor-in-chief for the American College of Cardiology's Extended Learning, or Excel, editorial board, where she continues to guide the direction of medical education and cardiology throughout the country. Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's awesome to finally be on your podcast. A long-time listener, first-time caller. I just wanted to take a minute, though, to say, before we talk about how fascinating LDL is, to say how incredibly proud I am of all of you. Providing education is always tough, but to do it to the degree and of the high caliber that the cardio nerds has done it is absolutely amazing. So keep up the good work. There's a lot of people rooting for you on this journey, and I can't wait to talk about LDL tonight. Gosh, what a what a privilege to have you here, Dr. Bailey. And honestly, it's so excited and, and looking forward to learning from your expertise as we discuss some of the recent guidelines regarding LDL. First, though, we'd like to start with a question we ask all guests here. What got you interested in a career in cardiovascular prevention? Well, I think that's a really great question. And the answer is definitely not straightforward for me. I was not someone who was born knowing I wanted to do what I wanted to do in life. I had a lot of classmates that did, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that wasn't me. But, you know, I grew up in an area of Appalachia that's vastly underserved from a healthcare perspective. People are very poor. It's a rural area, and there's just really not a lot of healthcare resources. It's surrounded by poor lifestyle. You know, I grew up seeing the effects of that on people's lives my entire life. As I got into medicine, I was really overwhelmed by the amount of chronic disease that I saw. I was not expecting that as an intern. But I do remember my intern year, I couldn't believe a person would have 20 prescriptions. And I saw it every single day. I had the opportunity to work as a physician at a weight loss clinic. It was a physician-assisted program, and it was a very low-calorie diet. It was sort of 800 to 1,200 calories. And for anyone who had a significant medical problem, diabetes, heart failure, coronary disease, the things we deal with every day, there was MD monitoring built in. Because their medications had to be altered so drastically with weight loss. I'll never forget the first week that I worked in this clinic. We cut basal insulin in half on day one, in half. I was absolutely astounded. By the end of the first month, everybody was off insulin if they followed the program. And blood pressure medicines went drastically down. Later on in the program, because we followed lipids, it was true for their lipid medications, etc. And it was such an eye-opening experience to me that how powerful diet was in our life and in our health. So as I moved through internal medicine, I realized that being healthy and fit is really the best insurance against chronic disease. And now in my daily life, I incorporate the power of lifestyle into everything I do, whether it's seeing an advanced heart failure patient or working with someone who doesn't want to be an advanced heart failure patient. Prevention really is king of cardiology. And I think more and more so all the other parts of medicine that we take care of patients in. And so I'd say that's sort of what drifted me into preventative cardiology. What an incredible story. And honestly, just such a privilege to hear that, Dr. Bailey, and, and to learn from you here. I think Tommy wanted to start things off with a patient story. That's right, Rick. And like you said, Dr. Bailey, so much of the pleasure in taking care of people is those interpersonal interactions. And I want to I share a uh, hypothetical patient story, it's a, but not dissimilar from something we've all seen before. We're going to talk about a patient I'm meeting for the first time in clinic, the aptly named Mr. Larry D. Lewis. He's a 55-year-old man, has history of hypertension, which he controls through diet and exercise. But unfortunately, one of his coworkers recently suffered an MI, which prompted Mr. Lewis to really think more about his own heart health. As a result, he asked his primary care doctor to check his cholesterol level. And in review of his lab work, you find that his LDLC is 140 milligrams per deciliter. He's concerned because this number is higher than he expected, and he wants to lower his risk of having a heart attack or a stroke in the future. In the prior episode, we discussed some of the pathophysiology and risks associated with an LDLC level in this range. Now, we'd like to focus a bit more on the guidelines. 
Dr. Bailey, based on the current guidelines for primary prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, how would you counsel our patient? I think this is a great patient, just like you said, somebody like we see every single day. You know, and one of the things that I do want to say is I am first and foremost a clinician. I love taking care of patients, and I do so as much as I get the opportunity to do, which is most days. I do a lot of this in clinic. I think the first thing that's important to point out is if we believe the LDL hypothesis, and I do, the lower the LDL, the better. So we have numbers and percent reductions that we talk about in the guidelines. But in my life and in my patients, I still counsel them that if we can get lower, especially with lifestyle changes, and I think that's really important and, that, and that's a key finding. So for this individual patient, I would say we really should check his LDL level, which we have. It's 140. Uh, a few things I would point out. If his LDL were greater than 190, we would just stop there and really give him a high-intensity statin. We wouldn't really need to go through the pooled cohorts equation to look at his risk because that really is a signifier of a high risk group that has been proven to get benefit from statin therapy. Now, I would go for more than 50% lowering in that group, and we would, you know, try to do that by high-intensity statin. And if we didn't get that, I would consider additional medications like a zetamib or a PCSK9 inhibitor. But for this individual, he kind of falls between the 70 to 190, and that's when we would really use the pool cohorts equation. There's the app that exists, the ASCVD risk calculator, and the app's pretty straightforward. You put in, you know, your clinical metrics, and it tells you what your 10-year predicted risk is. Now, I'm pretty sure he's going to fall in that 5 to 20% category. Above 7.5 is where we say statin therapy is indicated. And when we start talking about statin therapy, there's lots of different kinds of statins that we can talk about. And I know we'll get into that a little bit more in the future. But the first thing I talk with patients about is diet and lifestyle as a first means for everybody. And then I talk about percent reduction. Even in primary prevention, that's the strongest predictor of future event rates. We have numbers that we add, but we really are looking to try to get that percent LDL down as much as we can, and above 50% reduction from the starting point is where we see the greatest benefit. Dr. Bailey, thank you for all those pearls. And I think we talked with Dr. Toff earlier in another conversation about you know lower is better and seeing how that gets played out in the actual clinical bedside experience is so, so interesting and so important. And I think what resonates with me is that while the pooled cohort equation can group people into larger risk categories, is the individual patient characteristics as well as the shared decision-making between patient and physician that informs our decisions for lipid-lowering therapy. So speaking to that patient-physician relationship, one element that deserves healthy emphasis in our approach to primary prevention is the role of lifestyle and dietary changes, as you just chatted about. And oftentimes, our ability to counsel patients and assist in making these lifestyle changes can be just as beneficial, if not more beneficial, than any medications we prescribe. And you know, I want to take a moment, Dr. Bailey, can you share your approach to how you actually counsel patients who have elevated LDL levels in terms of their diet and exercise and what is the, the concrete things you recommend? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think our cholesterol guideline has some information in there. And then in 2019, there's a primary prevention guideline from ACC and AHA that's got a lot of great nutrition information in there if you're looking for something extra to read. I start out by telling everyone, I think that lifestyle should be the first step and the last step of everything we do, in addition to whatever medicines that we ultimately choose. So if you're a primary prevention patient or a secondary prevention patient, we have exactly the same discussion. The discussion would be changed a little bit based on whether you're a primary or secondary prevention on what I recommended after lifestyle. But I believe everyone should eat a variety of whole foods, including mostly vegetables, fruits, fiber-rich whole grains, nuts and seeds. 
I think everyone should minimize processed food of all kinds, but particularly processed meats and refined carbohydrates. Processed meats have been associated with increased mortality in every study that's been performed. They increase your risk of diabetes, colon cancer, heart disease, dementia. I mean, any bad thing you can think about, processed meats increase the risk of it. So I really counsel my patients, if there's only one change they can make in their diet, they should get away from processed meat. I think, you know, starting with simple changes for most people is really the most beneficial. We talk about getting rid of refined and processed carbohydrates. The biggest culprit for that is really sugar-sweetened beverages. And we speak a lot about that. And in adults, it's coffee drinks. Coffee by itself is probably a good thing. Coffee in the form of, you know, these sweetened and syrupy lattes and, and cappuccinos may not be a good thing or are not a good thing. And so I think we really have to look into that. You know, if you're overweight or obese, addressing that becomes very important. We see improvements in all metrics of health when you lose weight, and it doesn't have to be large and drastic amounts of weight. You can see improvements in health with as little as 3 to 5% of your body weight. 5 to 7 will get you better, and more than 7 to 10 is where we see sort of the best outcomes in patients who don't have a lot of weight to lose, that BMI in this low 30s range. Sort of the more overweight you are, the more you need to lose to see great health outcomes. And then physical activity is important for everybody. You know, our guidelines would recommend 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity or 75 minutes of vigorous. But really, when you look at mortality curves and activity, you get the biggest bang for your buck when you take people who are doing no activity and get them to do some activity. And so I draw this graph almost every single day in clinic. I have someone going from nothing to something, and I say that something can be as little as five minutes a day starting out. But if we got everybody in this country going from doing nothing to doing something, we would have far more of an impact than if we got people who were already doing 20 or 30 minutes a day to do more. And so I really focus on that, especially in my older patients or my patients who haven't done exercise in the past. And it can make a difference in our lipids as well. Now, when we start talking about very specific things about how we can change things, you know, I I follow a plant-based lifestyle and I really believe that there's a lot of scientific evidence about that. And I counsel my patients on that. You know, when we look at the Pretty Med trial, it was a large trial that looked at a Mediterranean diet and it showed benefit, you know, pretty substantial benefits on a combined endpoint. And really, though, if you took the pro-vegetarian food patterns, you saw a profound benefit in those groups that was in the highest category of plant-based eating, a 40% mortality reduction, which is absolutely profound. In the overall trial, we didn't see a mortality reduction in the individual endpoint. And then if you look in the Adventist health studies, which are some large studies, prospective studies looking at people who eat largely plant-based, what they see is that if you replace meat or animal products with nuts and seeds, about a 40% reduction in mortality, which is, again, pretty profound. I think when you're, we're talking about dietary constituents, dairy is a little more controversial to me, but I counsel my patients that lower fat options are definitely better because saturated fat will really drive our LDL up. And if you can transition to no dairy, I think it can make a difference in lipids. And then when we talk about specific dietary interventions, two to 10 grams a day of soluble fiber you know, whole grain oatmeal, whole grain oats, quinoa, some of these things that have fiber, 5 to 10% reduction in LDL. A serving a day of nuts will reduce your LDL 5 to 10 points. Replacing meat protein with vegetable protein, if you do 30 grams a day and don't make any other difference, you can expect about a 5 to 10% reduction in LDL. 
And again, I counsel people, we're looking for small changes that will last a lifetime to improve our overall cardiovascular health. And these are small things that we can do every single day. If we look at transitioning from a standard American diet or a SAD diet, as we call it, to a DASH-type diet, you can get an expected LDL reduction of about 10 milligrams per deciliter. If you go to a vegetarian diet from a typical omnivore diet, about 12 to 15 milligrams per deciliter reduction in LDL. And then if you get rid of simple carbs and sugar-sweetened beverages and increased fiber, you can see pretty profound reductions in triglycerides. It really depends on what you're eating. So I think that becomes the most important message that I try to deliver. We're looking for small changes that we can maintain throughout our entire life. Dr. Bailey, what a series of pearls there. Honestly, I'm, I'm, no, I'm going to have to go back and listen to everything you said there again, because that was just such an incredible series of, of statements and, and learning points. And in particular, your point on nothing to something and, and really, you know, if you're sedentary and, and not doing a lot of physical activity, just any amount helping, that's something that really resonated with me right off the bat. So to get back to our patient scenario here, we had an incredibly fruitful conversation with Mr. Lewis, who plans to start a structured exercise program, as well as start taking a moderate intensity statin. We'll plan to have him repeat his lipids within four to 12 weeks. And while the exact numbers differ between individuals, we'll generally expect a greater than 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol on a high intensity statin and a 30 to 49% reduction with moderate intensity statin, as well as a 30% reduction with low intensity statin. Thanks for that review, Rick. Knowing the expected lipid lowering effect not only helps us monitor for adherence, but it also helps give the patient a sense of what to expect with their next set of labs. Well, thanks to our success with our first patient, he actually referred his brother, Lucas D. Lewis, clearly the family has a theme in their naming, to our clinic as well. In reviewing his chart, Lucas is in a very different situation to his brother Larry. He's a 60-year-old man, has a history of prior TIA, and known peripheral arterial disease. Like his brother, Lucas's lipid profile also reveals an elevated LDLC, this time of 180. Dr. Paley, we've addressed some of these points already, but in terms of our approach to this patient, who's different from our last patient, and then he requires secondary prevention for atherosclerotic disease, how does this case differ and how would you approach it differently? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think it's really important to understand the difference. So primary prevention means you've never had an event and we're looking to prevent that first event. So the 10-year event rates are much lower than someone who has a secondary prevention indication. So that's someone who has already had a clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease event. And what we're talking about by that is an acute coronary syndrome, a prior heart attack, a stroke, a TIA, peripheral arterial disease, stable, unstable angina or an aortic aneurysm, all of those which we think are from an atherosclerotic standpoint. That group of individuals we know has considerably higher 10-year event rates because they already have the disease, and so we have to be more aggressive with everything we do. So with this patient, who is now by definition secondary prevention because of his prior TIA, I would still go over all the lifestyle things I did with his brother because I want to get his LDL as low as possible. I don't think there's any nadir that is too low for an LDL. So I want to go over everything lifestyle. Then we're going to add a high-intensity statin, and we want to get a goal of greater than 50% lowering for this patient. When we look at which one metric predicts outcomes the best, it's that percent reduction in LDL cholesterol. So we definitely want to get 50% 
And in our very high-risk group, we want to get an LDL less than 70. And that's really optional for everyone else. But for our very high-risk group, we should make sure we push that. And when we think about who is that very high-risk group, it's individuals who have multiple major ASCVD events, which would be a recent acute coronary syndrome, a prior MI, a history of a stroke, or symptomatic peripheral arterial disease, or one event and multiple high-risk conditions. And those high-risk conditions are just what you'd expect age greater than 65, heterozygous familial hyperlipidemia, prior cabbage or PCI, diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, a current smoker, someone whose LDL remains greater than 100 on a statin, or an individual that has heart failure. So again, multiple major events or one major event and multiple high-risk conditions will be in that very high-risk group. So I would say he's maybe not quite there yet, but it's probably going to be. So for him, I'd start with adding resuvastatin, 40 milligrams, because his LDL is pretty darn high. It's 180, and we want to, definitely want to get that greater than 50% reduction and less than 70. And I'd recheck his lipids in four to six weeks. You know, I check lipids early. Our guidelines would say four to 12. I try to do four to six to most people because I don't want to lose that clinical inertia that I've garnered by having all these discussions with him. So I get him back in. And recheck his lipids. If his LDL remains above 70, then I'd probably add ezetimibe as my second line drug. You know, ezetimibe is cost effective. It has very few side effects and you can see additional about 20% lipid lowering, I would say on average. Then I would recheck his lipids again in four to six weeks. If he's still above 70, at that point, I'd add a PCSK9 inhibitor and work on that, trying to get that LDL down. Now, I do want to have one word about statins. So statins get a really bad rap out there when patients are hearing about them for the first time. There's a lot of misinformation, I think, and a lot of fear about statins. And statins really are safe drugs. They've been around for a long time, and they really are the workhorse of our lipid-lowering therapies. They probably have effects in addition to LDL-lowering, the pleiotropic effects. And so I try to convince everybody to try statin. We also talk about what are expected side effects and what aren't expected side effects. Of course, myalgias are the most common ones that people can get concerned about. But there's also concern about developing diabetes, which is a low risk, and cognitive impairment, which I think has not been seen in the majority of the studies that has actually looked at this as an endpoint. And then, you know, the recent Samson trial was a beautiful trial. It took individuals who had a prior history of statin intolerance, and it randomized them to one of three treatments, and everybody got all three treatments placebo, statin, or nothing. So what they saw was that when people were taking nothing, they didn't have any symptoms. But when they were taking placebo or statin, their symptoms were about the same and more than when they were getting no drug. And so it was pretty eye-opening to the trial participants. And at the end of the trial, over 50% of them were then able to tolerate a statin after having been through this. So I make sure I, I really try to exhaust statin therapy before I say a patient is statin intolerant or can't take a statin. What an incredible summary, Dr. Bailey. Really appreciate your thoughts there. And again, just an incredible number of pearls here. You know, I'd love to really quickly ask your thoughts. You had mentioned the AHA, ACC guidelines recommending under 70 for high-risk patients. And we, we saw that the 2019 ESC EAS guidelines are actually recommending under 55 for very high-risk patients. Do you think you could speak on that at all? And, and, and kind of where are we going here with all this? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You know, I actually bring that up to my patients most of the time, and and we have this discussion. I tell them I live my life like I have ASCVD. I don't yet. I hope you know I haven't had a clinical event, but I live like I have, and I want my LDL as low as possible. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about cholesterol. But when we're born, do you guys have any idea what your LDL is when you're born? No, I'm actually not sure. It's in the 30s for most people. And when you when we start drinking breast milk or formula, it rises. And then in populations that don't live in industrialized worlds and eat the kind of food we do and are exposed to the kind of things we're exposed to, it usually drops back down to that 30 to 70 range. But when you look at the average American, it's considerably higher than that. And, and it is so around the world. And so I tell my patients, I would love for my LDL to get back to that 30 range. There's been a, a variety of fascinating studies looking at people who have these really low LDLs throughout their lifetime. And really, you see very minimal plaque accumulation. So I think the lower, the better. I haven't read any evidence or seen anything that makes me concerned that there is a LDL that is too low, you know, whether it's with lifestyle or with medications. And it's almost always with medications and in the individuals we take care of to get the LDL down that low. But I do think the lower, the better. And I think if the patient's open for it, you know, again, you have this patient-centered discussion and you talk about, you know, what are we willing to do to get our LDL even lower than the 70 recommendation? And I think less than 55 is very reasonable, especially in our high-risk patients or patients who don't want to be back in the hospital with a future event. Uh, That's fascinating, Dr. Bailey. And I think the idea of thinking about, you know, what is the LDL that the human body is supposed to have? And Going from there in terms of figuring out our goals is incredibly interesting. It reminds me of something that Dr. Toff told us about when we were chatting with him in one of our earlier LDL episodes about you know, how there are populations of people who live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and who are not exposed to some of the maladaptive things of a Western lifestyle in terms of their diet and their exercise and things like that. And their LDL levels are in the 30s as well. And it really just shows that these low levels of LDL are achievable and are not maladaptive, but potentially can be incredibly protective, especially, as you say, for high-risk folks. Yeah, you know, one of the things I'll tell you is that modern humans are the only adult mammals that have an LDL over 80. O'Keefe has this great commentary, I think it's like 2003, 2004, where he talks about sort of LDL and, you know, what is our LDL born? What does it do over our lifestyle? And, And why does it go up? And why is that maladaptive? So I would encourage you guys to check that out. Thank you for the reference, Dr. Bailey. And again, just an incredible summary of our approach to secondary prevention of ASCVD. So clearly novel therapeutics like ezetimibe and PCSK9 inhibitors have revolutionized our approach to LDL cholesterol-lowering therapies for high-risk patients. That being said, coverage barriers and widespread availability of these medications is still a work in progress. As these novel therapeutics become more prevalent in clinical practice, how do you think our approach to LDL cholesterol management will change? I think that's a wonderful question. I want to start off by saying one of the reasons these novel therapies are challenging is, you know, insurers have put this prior authorization into effect. And so I think prior authorizations is a big deal in cardiovascular medicine. As we're looking at new and novel therapies that improve mortality in our patients, they are not able to get these medications because the insurance company doesn't want to pay for them. And so I deal with it every single day. I, you know, I'm a heart failure and a preventive cardiologist, so I use a lot of PCS K9 inhibitors as well as SGLT2 inhibitors. You know, these drugs aren't cheap and we deal with a lot of prior auth. 
So I would say that's one of the things that I think we have to think about in medicine as a whole. I mean, I know it's into other fields as well, but cardiology, it really affects us. The American College of Cardiology has this prior authorization tool where they collect information so they can go back and we can use that to try to, you know, affect change. So if you guys ever find yourself doing a prior auth, log in. It only takes about one minute to fill out the little tool and say what you've had to do, but it's very helpful. Let's get back to our lipids and let me get off my soapbox there. But I think we're going to continue to individualize therapy for our patients. And I think we're going to do more individualization because we have more options. You know, for the longest time, we really just had statins as our only medicine that had strong outcomes data associated with it. But I think as more options become available and more cardiovascular outcomes trials show us that these newer drugs that are being studied actually make a difference in outcomes we'll sort of be able to pick and choose what we want to do with the individual patient. You know, there's a lot of medicines that are in the pipeline right now. I don't get too excited about them until they have outcomes data out there. You know, I've lived through the world of fibrates. I've lived through the the world of niacin. And so until I see a reduction in an endpoint that I care about, not just lowering of a number, I don't get too excited about these medications. And I would encourage all of you to think about medications that way too. I think we've seen that a lot in lipids. So make sure there's some outcome you're improving that you care about. Now, if you really care if someone's triglycerides go from 190 to 150 and that makes you happy, okay. But I want to see a reduction in an MI or a stroke or something tangible that makes sense for a patient to take this medication. I think triglycerides and hemoglobin A1C are both great examples. I'll tell you in my practice, I stop an awful lot of fibrates and sulfonylureas almost every day because I think neither of these drugs have been proven overall to lower cardiovascular event rates in the large population. Fascinating. And I think just as you're mentioning, bringing it back to what's actually going to help the patient is so, so important. Not so much what numbers may change, but what actually is going to change a actual clinical outcome for the patient sitting in front of you is what should guide our therapies more so than anything else. Thankfully, we have good medications that can be so beneficial for patients as we've discussed so far. Now, that being said, there's still a lot of work to be done to make sure that these therapies like statins, Zetamide, PCSK9s are making their way to patients. You know, there's a recent analysis of the Pinnacle Registry from back in 2019 and looked at 2.5 million patients with known ASCVD. 52.7% of those patients had no history of previously being prescribed with a lowering therapy. About 71.9% did not meet an LDLC goal less than 70. That's right. And even in a closely watched and well-funded study like the ischemia trial, only 41% of patients were on optimal medical therapy by the end of the trial. While this was an improvement from the beginning with only 20% on OMT or optimal medical therapy and 59% on lipid lowering therapy by the end of the trial, there's clearly still a lot to be done in getting our patients on the best medications possible. While these statistics can be discouraging, they reinforce the importance of dissemination of digestible and straightforward guidelines, then also making sure that the patients are an active participant in their health and they're educated to the effects of these medications and potential benefits. So to that point, Dr. Bailey, how do you think we can do a better job as a community of cardiologists and primary care doctors in this respect? I think that is a wonderful point. You know, I I make it a point, especially my heart failure patients and especially my acute MI patients, to talk about why I prescribed each drug. And then I put their pills, I, I ask everybody to bring their pills to see me. I put them in two piles. 
I put them into a pile of medicines that save your life and a pile of medicines that make you feel better. And I say, I'm going to do everything I can to get you on all these medicines at the right doses that save your life or reduce mortality. And you and I are going to work together to figure out which of these medicines that make you feel better that we can get rid of and which medicines we need to keep. Because I think polypharmacy is a big deal, especially in cardiology and especially in heart failure. You know, our CAD patients and our heart failure patients, most of them have on average five comorbidities when you start looking through them. And so that adds up to a lot of medication use. And so we spend a lot of time saying, you know, I am prescribing you a statin medication, not just to lower your cholesterol, but to prevent your risk of a future heart attack or stroke. I want you to live long and I want you to live a healthy life. And I think when you start talking to patients about the medicines in that way, it becomes a more tangible realization of what we're trying to achieve. You know, I tell them, I want you to live as long as you can with the best quality of life possible. And the way we're going to do that is prevention, prevention, prevention. That's excellent. And I think that's such a bright note here in terms of we want to emphasize your quality of life and emphasize making sure you can do what is important to you. So on that positive note, I want to slowly bring things to a close here and close things out with a classic cardio nurse question. Dr. Bailey, what makes your heart flutter about lipids in preventative cardiology? Well, I think it's fascinating to see what's possible when you have a motivated patient, a motivated clinician, and lots of options from the pharmaceutical world and lifestyle choices. So I'm going to give you a great example of one of the things I find powerful. So one of my patients, who also happens to be a great friend, recently had his cholesterol checked and his LDL was 180. He did not want to take medications. And so we sit down and we had a long talk. We had a patient-centered discussion about this. We talked about lifestyle and he felt like he was living a pretty good lifestyle, but he was able to cut out animal meats and add more vegetables. We rechecked it and it was down to 140. I was like, well, it's pretty good, but it's probably still too high. And I wouldn't want my LDL to be 140. So we really talked about the data that exists about diet and lowering LDL cholesterol. And so he removed dairy and went totally plant-based and started running. And now his LDL is 110 at his last check. He's also lost about 30 pounds. And it really excites me because that's the power of lifestyle. So now I could have just as easily have given him a prescription for a statin and that wouldn't have been wrong at all. He would have fallen into that. He did. We did his ASCVD risk calculation in the pool cohorts equation. He was in the 7.8% category. And so a statin would have been a fine choice. But we have so many options. And depending on where you meet the patient and what they're willing to do with lifestyle, we can optimize things from many levels, drug, lifestyle, whatever we want to do. That excites me. What an inspiring story just about what makes medicine so fruitful and rewarding for all of us. And Dr. Bailey, I just want to thank you for sharing all that and for being with us here today. It's uh, It's been an honor to hear your insights and to hear your approach to how you take care of your patients. And like I said earlier, it's truly, truly inspiring as well. Dr. Bailey, so incredibly grateful for this practical and guideline-driven advice and the pearls you provided today. It's really, again, I've, I said this before, but something that I need to go back and listen to again because there's just so much that was referenced and, and to listen to again. Uh, for our audience, this episode concludes our three-part series on LDL cholesterol. That being said, the preventative cardiology pearls do not stop here. Coming up, we have a deep dive into triglycerides with the hope of getting to the heart of this important and recently controversial molecule. We'll see you next time, Cardio Nerds. And again, thank you, Dr. Bailey, so much. It's, it's truly an honor to have you here and learned so much today. Thank you so much. It was an honor for me to be on the Cardio Nerds podcast.
Wait, wait, guys, before you close the recording, it's I just had to pop in. Now, I know I'm not supposed to be on this recording, and I'm supposed to just be a passive listener here to support Rick and Tommy, which, by the way, guys, you are such natural hosts, and I am so proud of your leadership over the Lipid series. So congratulations to you guys. But again, I just had to pop in because, Dr. Bailey, it is such an honor for us to finally have you on Cardio Nerds. You definitely are our hero, and you inspire us in so many ways as a master of medical education, innovator in digital asynchronous education, an absolute leader in cardiology and in the field, whether it's the ACC, ASPC, and your local institutions. So, Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for joining us today and for all the support and encouragement you've, you've given and continue to give to us nerds. Wonderful. I can't think of anywhere I'd rather be. Thank <laughs> you.